So this past week, I've been thinking about the, the things that we do as a church. Historically, the, the activities, the programs that we have sponsored, planned, been involved with over the years. I, I begin thinking about the things that I have missed most. But I'm, I'm curious this morning as we get underway here, what are the things that in the last two years you have missed the most about church as we have done it up until the last two years? Just call out a word or so, a program, an activity, a, a, a mission, a ministry. What's something that you have really missed because we haven't been able to do it together? Potlucks with all kinds of amens for those of you on YouTube. What else? What's that? In-person prayer meeting. You haven't missed anything? Back to the drawing board. What else? What are some of the things that, that are kind of iconic things that the church does? This is, this is who we are, and, and we haven't been able to do them. The people here, everybody, the body of Christ gathering together, sitting shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow. The elbow to elbow, yes, I hear amens on that. is talking about the fact that somehow we've been able to remain connected despite the changes that we've had to, to institute but we've, we've done a good job of remaining connected I, I've, I've been thinking about these things and I have missed many of them I, I've sometimes said to some people that I feel like I'm a, I'm a carpenter who had a, a full toolbox and I've been reduced to, to one tool now preaching on Sundays And then, so I've, I've missed, especially the first year when we were being so careful, I've missed a lot of the, the pastoral care contacts, the, the time spent with people. Uh, I have been surprised as a raging introvert at how much I have missed face-to-face -face interaction with people. <laughs> I just, I don't do the telephone. And, uh, and so that's been something that I've missed. I, I've used the word iconic this morning to describe some of these things. We think of potlucks and mission trips and these sorts of things as, as iconic parts of what it means to be the Church of Jesus Christ. And we've missed some of that, or at least I have missed some of that. And I appreciate the, the, the expressions I hear from people of the desire to get back together and so on and so forth. But... It's difficult, it has been difficult for some of those icons to be smashed in the last two years. Things that we're looking forward to getting back to that we haven't been able to do. And it was no different 2,000 years ago. And as a matter of fact, uh, Jesus was the one who was the iconoclast, the one who was smashing some of the icons that the Jews held so desperately dearly to things that it 
that, that they knew meant that they were the people of God and this was what God had called them to do and to be and here's this Jesus who comes along and smashes some of those icons. I'd invite you, invite you to join me in Luke chapter 4 beginning at verse 14 as we come across one of these early episodes of the iconoclast at work. Luke chapter 4 beginning at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee from being baptized at the Jordan River. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Position, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in, in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. The key to understand why Jesus was seen as an iconoclast, a basher of coveted icons, is found in verses 24 to 27. Israelites had gone from being God's chosen people to being, or what they thought, God's exclusive chosen people. They held on with both hands to the prerogatives that they felt that they had because God had chosen them over all other nations to be his people. 
Gentiles were believed to be fuel for the fires of hell as far as they were concerned. But here in these verses, Jesus seems to be saying that they would be blessed by God when the Messiah arrived just as Israel had been blessed by God. These two heroes of Israel's history, Elijah and Elisha, who had stood in the face of apostasy, had called Israel to be God's covenant people. But Jesus picks out two little episodes in their lives, episodes in which they blessed Gentiles, not Israelites. Jesus drew a couple para several parallels between Elijah and Elisha and himself. The first is that they were, of course, prophets. He identifies them as prophets. But now he was claiming to be a prophet. He uses the word fulfillment after reading that passage from the prophet Isaiah. That prophecy, he says, has been fulfilled. Jesus is calling himself a prophet, just like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah. Next, Elijah and Elisha had not always been treated with respect by their own people, had they? Think King Ahab trying to kill Elijah. Think those children that were taunting Elisha, the ones he called the bears out on. You know, these were prophets who weren't always accepted in their homeland. And Jesus is beginning to feel disrespected here at the beginning of his three years of public ministry in his hometown where he would hope perhaps to be respected because of the way he grew up and the life that he had lived, but now he's receiving disrespect. Aren't you Joseph's son, carpenter? Elijah and Elisha had been a reminder that God's chosen people didn't always get it right. Their job was to call out the Israelites for their faithlessness. And now they're blessing Gentiles, not cursing them? Jesus likewise has come to remind the people of God's universal mission of building the kingdom for all people. So what the people of Nazareth heard in the synagogue that way, that day, was that Israel's God was coming to rescue the wrong people. God, you're coming to rescue Israel, right? You're coming to restore our fortunes as your exclusively chosen people. And here Jesus is jumping on the bandwagon with Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah about rescuing the wrong kind of people. Jesus is saying that God has come not to inflict a beating on Israel's enemies, but to shed light and grace and love on all people. I say, on all people. Jesus wasn't the first iconoclast, nor would he be the last. Throughout Christian history, there have been people who have called the church back to its roots, back to its right priorities. I've mentioned this before, but Phyllis Tickle wrote a book about 500-year cycles in the last 2,000 years of Christian history, the iconoclastic events of the Great Reformation 500 years ago, or a case in point, where Martin Luther and other reformers called the church back to its roots. 
including the priesthood of all believers. It wasn't the exclusive domain just of those who were ordained, but every single last believer in Christ was called to be a minister, an ambassador, a bridge-building priest. Part of the Reformation was the call back to salvation by faith. Not by money, buying your way into the kingdom. One of the great iconoclastic elements of the Reformation was the Bible being printed in the vernacular in the language of the common people. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to read the Bible in your own language? And yet these people were called iconoclasts. They were called ones who were breaking the most precious, cherished parts of what it meant to be the church of Jesus Christ. God came in the person of Jesus to have a conversation with the Israelites. Remember, he said, my focus is to the, the Israelites, to God's chosen people. Of course, the apostles and all that uh, that followed were, were given the task of reaching the entire world, but Jesus was sent primarily to have a conversation with, uh, with the Israelites about their role in establishing the kingdom of God. And here at the first opportunity, they rejected the conversation. People of Nazareth, the representatives of Israel, rejected the conversation. Barbara Brown Taylor is an Episcopal priest and author. She describes this rejection saying, how many times have I rejected love because it did not present itself the way I expected in a form acceptable to me? That pain and regret in her voice, how many times have I rejected love because it did not present itself the way I expected, in a form acceptable to me. And that's what happened there in Nazareth. Love showed up, not saying the things that they expected, though, saying the things that were unexpected and rejected, therefore. In the beginning of this episode of Jesus in, in Nazareth, it's hard for us to imagine how badly this confrontation is going to go at the end of the story, isn't it? Because it begins with the people being amazed at Jesus. In verse 14, it says that he, had, he came in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this isn't the first time we get that message coming through. It's a common theme in the beginning chapters of Luke. In chapter 2, verse 40, it says that Jesus grew and became strong filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Verse 2, chapter 52, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. Chapter 4, verse 1, he goes into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was a marvel every place he went, wasn't he? And he was a marvel because he was full of the Spirit of God. He was a marvel because he was saying astonishing, amazing truth that was given to him by his Heavenly Father to share with the world. People were initially amazed at his teaching. 
But that amazement apparently didn't last very long. In verse 20 and 21, part of the key transition, the whiplash begins to show itself. It says in verse 20 that Jesus, after reading this passage from Isaiah, sat down. You know, the way we use that phrase, we might have thought that he sat down because he was finished. He had said his peace. But in synagogues in the first century, the rabbi would sit down to teach. He wouldn't be standing behind a podium, he'd be sitting in a chair, on the Moses seat perhaps in the synagogue. So Jesus is sitting down to demonstrate that he is now the rabbi, the teacher, the one who is going to share his insights in the word of God with the rest of the congregation. The carpenter's son? Really? Joseph's son is sitting in Moses' seat to teach us about scripture? People are beginning to think, where did he get this teaching? We've heard stories over the last few weeks of him teaching and working miracles, but, but where did he get this kind of authority? He's only been away from home for a few weeks now. What has happened? What this transformation? Where is this coming from? Who does he think he is? They start out amazed, but here's the first step towards dismissing the one who was so amazing. By quoting from Isaiah chapter 61, Jesus makes this claim of being the rabbi, the authoritative one. He makes it explicit. He is saying, I am the anointed one of God. He is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. Eugene Peterson translates verse 21 in his classic way. He says, Jesus says, you've just heard scripture make history. I'm hearing a little bit of Howard Cosell cell in the background perhaps. You've just heard scripture make history. It came true just now in this place. start out being amazed at Jesus, but when Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, a few people in the back row start saying, Joseph's son? The the carpenter? Really? So in a blink of an eye, their attitude goes from amazement to dismissiveness. He can't be the Messiah. And then after Jesus' comments about Elijah and Elisha, in another blink of an eye, it goes from being dismissive to being furious. So just imagine you come into church on a Sunday morning, you're greeting people in the foyer, you've had a good week, you know, you're finally shoveled out, the car works, you haven't crashed and slid all over the place in the ice, you're having a pretty good week and it's so nice to see everybody, you're just amazed that so many people came out to church this morning and then within the span of an hour and 15 minutes or so you go out of here furious. (laughs) 
I'm feeling some neck pain. They've gone from being amazed at Jesus to being dismissive of Jesus to marching him out of town to throw him off the cliff. You know, we have a tendency to hold on to the icons of our life, don't we? We, we like the habits and the routines. We, we don't like it when things are pushed and pulled and moving in different directions. We, we like the conclusions we've come to and we cherish them and we hold on to them and we don't like it when somebody comes in and suggests that perhaps it's not the way we thought it was. Ordinarily though, when we hold on to those things, we, 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 just, we just dismiss the person who might be challenging our dearly held beliefs, right? We, we dismiss people who suggest that there's a better way of doing something. We don't get fear, well, maybe sometimes we do get furious, but certainly we don't march them out of town and try to kill them, do we? Our relationship probably started with something that was a little bit like amazement. Do you, can you think back, can you remember that far back to the day that Jesus became your Savior? Can you think back to those early years, childhood or adolescence perhaps, when you were astonished at how wonderful the love of God was? Do you remember that? I remember that over 40 years ago, but I remember how astonished I was that God could love me and want to be my father. But at some point, if you're like me, we put our amazement away in the, in the closet, in a, in a box under the bed, perhaps. We store that amazement, that astonishment away, and, and we begin to find it easier to ignore or to dismiss him in our everyday life. Jesus isn't always the first thought to come to mind when something bad happens. There's a few other words that may come to mind, or it's not as easy to resist that temptation because Jesus isn't the first thing that comes to mind anymore because he's being stored in the closet put into a box. Or when God starts poking around in our lives for uh, this reason or for that reason, some bad things happen perhaps, and God could maybe wanted to use these things to help mold and shape us, but instead we shake our fist at him. Why did you let that happen? Why didn't you solve that problem? Why didn't you answer that prayer? What started out as amazement and then kind of got dismissed and put away for a while may even turn into fury. There are always changes taking place, aren't there? God is always ready to do something new, isn't he? I hope so. God is wanting to do something that's beyond even what we can ask or imagine. Here we are, 500 years after that great reformation. If Phyllis Tickle is right, and every 500 years there's a bit of an upheaval, she, upheaval, she calls them 
rummage sales. She says every 500 years since Jesus, the church has put some stuff out on the curb that they've wanted to get rid of, that they've realized they could leave behind. Well, it's been 500 years since the iconoclasm of the Great Reformation. And perhaps, just perhaps, it's time for another rummage sale. John White and I had a conversation about two years ago. He said that he had been talking to some pastor friends of his and they had come to the conclusion that when this pandemic was all over, perhaps all of our churches would be back in a church planting mindset. Is that kind of how the way the conversation went, John? Am I getting it right? You know, instead of being our mega churches or our strong churches with all kinds of iconic programs and activities and missions and ministries, we would be back to the point where we're trying to scratch out a congregation from hard-packed earth. Church planting, starting all over. We've been looking for normal waiting for normal, praying for normal, hoping for normal. But what happens? What happens if God intends to use this pandemic to trigger a 500-year yard sale? What if Going back to normal is kind of like putting God back in the closet where it's easier to dismiss him. Brothers and sisters, I don't pretend to be a prophet, but I think John and his friends probably were pretty prophetic. I think we are probably on the verge of some sort of a Let's not call it a rummage sale. Let's call it a reboot. You know, there's all kinds of TV shows anymore that are reboots of old, old TV shows. They got friends back together for one conversation. They, 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 they got the crew from Harry Potter back for a, an evening of reminiscing and they're launching new versions of old shows. I can hardly wait for the Brady Bunch. <laughs> Meh. Hogan's Heroes. Bonanza. I just have the feeling that it's time in the church, perhaps for a reboot. And one of the most helpful spiritual disciplines, one of the most helpful aspects of our spirituality, if this is what it's going to be, church planting again, a reboot of the church, a rummage sale every 500 years, one of the most helpful things that we need to be looking for and holding on to is teachability. Teachability. This episode of Jesus in Nazareth illustrates how important being teachable is. Part of teachability is recognizing the sovereignty of God, even if it's packaged in the person of Joseph's son, the carpenter. God is sovereign. God is building his church, right? 
but he chooses to do so through the carpenter's son. He chooses to do so through people like us. Turn to the person sitting next to you and say, you know, from this angle, you look a lot like a church planter. Go ahead, say it. The sovereignty of God is unquestionable. That is not going to change. But how God expresses his sovereignty over the human race might change, and it might involve carpenter's sons and accountants and retired people and parents of young kids. A second thing we learn from this episode is that acknowledging that God can work through the most humble circumstances is part of the way God works. God will work through the carpenter's son because he is a servant. Not lording it over people. He is a servant. God can work through the most humble circumstances, including a Roman cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Oh, come on, God, you've got to be kidding me. That's not how things are done. We don't get things accomplished by electric chairs and firing squads and Roman crosses. No, those are losers. That couldn't possibly be the thing that would spark a turnaround in the church, could it? Another thing that's involved is the necessity of recognizing that our previous options and opinions and conclusions might no longer be suitable for what God is doing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, once I thought as a child, I spoke as a child. There's a growing up process that Paul is acknowledging and that we need to acknowledge. Part of God's way of working is to put things behind us and move on to maturity and move on to fullness and move on to, dare we say, bigger and better, better kingdom of heaven. <laughs> so teachability, an important quality that Jesus is trying to get across to these people from Nazareth. Teachability is described in Adele Calhoun's book, Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, as a propensity and openness to learn from God no matter who the teacher is. An appropriate openness to new ideas and opinions and styles and people. We tend to be conservative and want to hold on to the old, but teachability means being open to new. Teachability is curbing our know-it-all attitude. Can I get a witness? <laughs> it means asking questions that lead to deeper God awareness. It means listening more and talking less. Refraining from snap judgments based only on appearances. It means asking God to give you a teachable heart and a will to listen. 
It means sometimes asking some of the people who know you best how you come across. Have you ever done that? <laughs> Turn to the person next to you and say, I desire to know my faults. Ooh, that's a hard question. Do you suppose that you come across to those people as open and teachable? Or convinced and unteachable? Do you tend to instruct people and set them right? <laughs> How do people feel about disagreeing with you? Ooh, there's a question. How do people feel about disagreeing with you? All part of what it means to be teachable. And being teachable is hard work because it requires humility first and foremost, doesn't it? It doesn't come naturally, this humility thing. That's a Christ-like quality. That's fruit of the Spirit. So rebooting and teachability. Perhaps the two words for this morning. One of the amazing, amazing, amazing verses in Scripture is Luke chapter 4, verse 30. They were intent on throwing him off the hillside, the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Walked right through the crowd and went on his way. The town of Nazareth had the unique opportunity to play a significant role in the ministry of Jesus. It was his hometown. It was full of the people who knew him best, the people who knew his story and had watched him grow up. And they had the opportunity as he was preaching in the synagogue that day to be the, the megaphone, to amplify the message of Christ that the kingdom had come. And it had come for the most unfortunate, misused people of all, prisoners and oppressed folks and blind people and on and on. And they had the opportunity to take Jesus into their arms and say, how can we help you broadcast this message far and wide? How can we be the launching platform for the, the ministry that God has sent you to accomplish among the human race? But instead, they went from amazement to dismissiveness to fury, and they tried to kill him. Which, of course, they couldn't do because it wasn't his time yet. He's not afraid of being killed. It's just not his time yet. But instead of being that amplifier, Nazareth because they rejected the conversation that Jesus wanted to have with them, became a forgotten and ignored community. Jesus walked right through them and left town. And according to the gospel record, Jesus never visited Nazareth again. If we reject the conversation that God offers to have with us, he may just turn and walk away. 
And you might say, oh, pastor, that's not the way my God operates. But I contend that it is the way he operates. God will give us what we ask for. That's exactly what he did when the Israelites asked for a king like all the other nations. Fine, I'll give you a king. And he's going to make your life miserable, but since that's what you seem to want, I'll give you that. So if God is coming into our midst in these days of the pandemic and saying it's time for a reboot, it's time to leave behind some of the things that may have worked 30 or 40 years ago but won't work in the world in which you live today, it's time for a reboot and here's how it's going to happen. It's going to happen through humble people just like you, people that are willing to be taught something new after all the years of believing what we have believed. And I'm not talking about changing our 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 theology I'm talking primarily probably about the methodology what does it mean to be the people of God in the 21st century in a world where most people have come to the conclusion that God is dead God is irrelevant God is in hiding what is it going to mean I believe that God is going to be revealing that to us And Lord, I pray that we would be teachable. I pray, Father, that we would be ready to hear from you things that might be hard to hear, might sound and seem illogical and unreasonable and silly. But that's how God has always worked, right? Let's sing this song and then let's pray.
heads together. Listening is a key part of teachability. Not just hearing words, but listening to the heart of God. Listening to the transforming voice of the Holy Spirit. Lord, almost two years ago, we prayed and we thought that if we just wore masks and stayed home for a couple weeks, this would be over. Two years later, virtually everything has changed, and it's still not over. Lord, we don't know what that next rummage sale might look like. But if this pandemic and all that is shaken up in our lives is part of the way you will reboot the Church of Jesus Christ in North America and around the world, then Lord, we want to listen. As much as we want things to go back to normal, Father, we are willing to bring you out of the closet to get you in sharper focus, to get down on our knees and humble ourselves and pray not our will, but your will be done. Lord, we pray that as our church board continues to explore what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ, to be kingdom builders, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment and insight into what your spirit is doing here in the greater Concord area. Lord, how can we be a part of what you want to accomplish in the lives of people who have grown cold and dead spiritually? Lord, what's the revival that you want to spark in our hearts and our congregation? And what will it mean for us how we spend our hours and minutes and days. How we spend our money and our energy. Lord, what will it mean in our relationships at school and at work and in our neighborhoods and in our families? Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. Speak to us, Lord. And sons and daughters of the carpenter are listening. Have your way. In Christ's name and for his glory alone. All of God's children say. Amen. Mm -hmm.